If only this bike could somehow talk, it may help solve an intriguing mystery. In 1996, a racing bike was featured on a television programme called Australia's Most Wanted. Its owner vanished mid-last year in Sydney's inner west, leaving police with just this silent witness. When the bike was found, it was wet. We didn't even know whether that bike was tied to that location. The bike was a vital piece of evidence in the disappearance and possible homicide of an Irishman living in Sydney. There was no damage to the bike to indicate he'd been involved in an accident or struggle. He cycled to work every day. In those days in Australia, that was totally unheard if you didn't cycle to work. Nobody cycled to work. Police investigated the case for months on end. There were no clues at all to suggest how or why the 36-year-old had become separated from his most prized possession. He treasured that bike and to have it unaccounted for and unsecured added to the mystery. The bicycle did reveal important details at the time, but it's a mystery that is still not solved almost 27 years later. From RT Documentary on One, this is Missing Gerard. Now, I'm just looking at what I have here. I have Gerard's diary. Rita Mooney is at her home outside Dublin, looking through a box of photographs, letters and official documents related to her brother's disappearance. I have all the people that I phoned back then. All of the names of the people. There's so many. Rita believes somebody knows what happened to her brother and that this documentary can help her and her family to find out more about what happened to him. Gerard is one of thousands of Irish people who go missing every year. Most of them turn up within a few hours or days. A very small number of people decide to stay away, making a decision to move on. But an even smaller number are never seen again. For those left behind, the questions never go away and the hope of an answer lingers on. It's hard to, to explain how somebody can just, just walk out the door and never be seen again, ever. What makes Gerard's disappearance so unusual is that it happened so far away in Australia and that he just sort of vanished one day. A man who's six foot four like Gerard, he just, just didn't disappear off the face of the earth. How could they? There was my mum, dad, four children. I was the eldest. Gerard was born in November 1960. Gerard Mooney grew up on the north side of Dublin City. He was a quiet lad, very quiet. He read a lot. He went to Benevon College in Glasnevin. Like so many big sisters, Rita has fond memories of her younger brother. Cycling was his real passion in life. He belonged to the roadsters in Dublin. His bikes had to be custom-made for him from, say, 16 onwards because he was so tall. He had taken part in the Ross Tolchin. I always have these fond memories of him. He would have cycled, for example, from Dublin to Wexford on a Friday evening, and that, that wouldn't be difficult for him to do. He took on an apprenticeship as a printer in Cal's the Printers in Eastwall Road. In those days, it, it was a trade you travelled with, and I think that's where the attraction lay for Ger. Like, he, he wanted to go and see the world, and he wanted to be able to support himself at the same time. He was well-travelled. He cycled through Asia. He went to Vietnam. 
you're done as leaving. And then it was a three-year apprenticeship on top of that. You would have been talking, he was about 21, 22 by the time he finished his apprenticeship. And then he would have worked for, say, two, three years to get experience, and then he decided he was going to go. He would have left around 1985. You know, there was a lot of people emigrating at that time. It wasn't unusual to go away. During the 1980s, about a half a million people left Ireland. Most of them went to the UK, Europe or the US. It got so bad, the population of Ireland began to fall. Back then, emigration to Australia was making the Irish television news. In Australia, and particularly in Sydney, you're constantly reminded that a third of the entire population has some Irish ancestry. Indeed, people say that Australian society is very Irish in character. All of this, plus the availability of jobs, means that the Irish have very little difficulty getting fixed up here. He didn't go to Australia until he was 25. I always remember my dad saying how difficult it was for him the morning that he left him down to uh, the boat, you know, just to leave him there. Because, OK, you had a phone, but you just didn't hear from people. You know, they went to Australia and they, they got home once every three, four years. And in the 1980s, Australia did seem that much further away. A telecom errand used to run special rates at Christmas for people to dial their family abroad. And everybody would wait until, you know, a minute past midnight and everybody would start dialing. It was so expensive. George settled in well to his new life, spending his first year in Sydney, then moving on to Melbourne, where he had a wide circle of friends. He was living his life, he was out cycling, he was working. You know, he play, when, when he lived in Australia, he played touch rugby. And, and this being the 1980s. Especially for you. Australia was all about Kylie and Jason, men at work, Aussie rules, neighbours. And this guy, who really put Australia on the cultural map. What for? He's got a knife. Knife. That's a knife. His friends used to laugh. They used to say he was like an advertisement for the Australian tourist board. This is a certificate of Australian citizenship. And at this stage, he's called himself Jerry Mooney. I hereby grant this certificate of Australian citizenship to the above-named applicant who shall be an Australian citizen on and after the 13th of December 1990. Like so many families, the Moonies stayed in touch with letters, the odd phone call and the even rarer visit home. That would have been the last Christmas card he sent us and that would have been so typical. Hi, how are you all? Jean sent me photos of the house. It looks great, yeah. We just moved in here. What is the heating set up now? That would be very typical, sure. <laughs> very practical. <laughs> Nothing major happening over here. Flat out and work with the Christmas rush. I'll be in Melbourne for Christmas, flying down next week. Take care, Jerry. So that would be a snapshot of, of, of what you would get every three months. You'd get that at your birthday, you'd get it at Christmas. By the early 1990s, Gerard Mooney was well settled in Australia. He led a quiet life. He worked hard and had a girlfriend for a number of years. But at the end of 1995, he moved cities one more time, leaving Melbourne and moving back to Sydney. 
He was living in Sydney at that stage. So he was obviously going down to Melbourne to catch up with his friends, spending Christmas with them. Uh, the last six months he'd, he'd moved back to Sydney, but obviously he hadn't got a social circle there yet. His social circle was still down in Melbourne. It would have been the Christmas of 95. My mum had um, an illness called cerebral atrophy and had been ill for 10 years. Now, he actually came home then in February of 96. My mum died, but that wasn't planned. And there really wasn't much talk then about anything other than the funeral. He was home for the few days. He would have been home four years prior to that because he was actually my daughter's godfather and he would have been home for her christening. So it would have been four years since I'd seen him and he looked very fit, he looked very well. My brother was getting married in July 96 and he said that he wouldn't be home again for that. Um, we were at the wedding and a friend of his rang to say that he couldn't make contact with Ger and he would have been one of his friends from the cycling group. And he just rang to say that his phone was ringing out. Was there a problem? Was something going on? Had he moved? It, it wouldn't have been a worry because Ger would only tell us after the event when he was doing anything. Like, he, he was a 35-year-old man who'd been living in Australia for 10 years. You know, it was more kind of, is he OK? Is he sick? Had he fallen off his bike? He'd had an accident on his bike previously, and we only heard about that after the event. He'd broken his femur and had plates inserted, so that... that we were just worried from, from an accident point of view. We waited then until the 2nd of August, which is my dad's birthday. We definitely knew that he would make contact on the 2nd of August, and he didn't, and that's when we worried, because he had never, ever missed my father's birthday, ever. He was very reliable like that. You know, birthdays, Christmas, you know, he, he would make contact. We rang the police in Marrickville and asked them, could they go to his unit to check to see if he was OK, if anything had happened. Gerard had moved into an apartment in Marrickville, an inner suburb of Sydney. David Burns, my name, and uh, at the time I was a detective senior constable. I'd just transferred over to Marrickville and uh, was working there on criminal investigation duties. My name's Tony Hughes. Uh, at the time I was a detective senior constable as well, attached to Marrickville, and uh, Dave and I worked together on this matter one of the uniformed sergeants received the call from Rita Mooney and she reported to him that her brother had failed to make contact and there was a number of significant events that occurred within the family and it was uncharacteristic of him not to maintain contact with the family. That particular stage was more of a concern for welfare. And they went into the unit. The sergeant went down that night and carried out some inquiries, first of all. There was really nothing amiss, you know, it was just a normal home. This was around the 2nd of August, 1996. Probably the most significant thing is that there was nothing significant about the property, like there's no overturned furniture, there was nothing damaged. No signs of, of violence or anything like that. From memory, it was quite a clean, tidy apartment, well maintained. The first thing they needed to figure out was when Gerard might have gone missing. One of the things we look for is any newspapers that may indicate a date that 
newspaper was printed and we actually went and had a look in the fridge and we found some milk and we look at the expiry date of that and we can start to get a point of time. So that coupled with um, a packaging for bread that we found in the, in the unit, there was a two months gap between that date of that milk and the bread to when readers actually notified us. That put the date of his disappearance to roughly the middle of May. The only thing missing was his backpack and his wallet and his personal belongings. So the other thing too, that, that once we gained access to the unit, that that identified was a picture of a bicycle with Jared, and that became highly relevant uh, to the investigation. Jared's racing bike was not in the apartment. Sometime prior to receiving the call from Rita, that bike was found in the rear lane behind the unit block where Jared lived. The gentleman that found it was a, a bike enthusiast and he recognised the, the quality of the bike and he's actually handed it into the police. It was coincidental that the uniform sergeant was familiar with the bike being handed into the police station and he was the same officer that came up to the unit in the first instance and he was able to see the photograph on the wall and drew the conclusion that, that it was the same bike. We made extensive inquiries uh, to try and drill down, so to speak, on how long it had been there and uh, we interviewed some um, local garbage men and they indicated a date that they uh, didn't recall seeing it. It was when the bike was found it was wet and uh, made inquiries with the Bureau of Meteorology. It had rained around that time, so we identified a small window that the bike would have been put there or left there. The date that he disappeared has kind of been put as, as the 14th of May. So the police in Sydney now had a good idea of when, but they had no idea how or why this had happened. There are many reasons why people go missing, but one of the first things considered is whether the person has made a decision to end their own life. But Tony Hughes and Dave Byrne ruled out that possibility very early on. There was a meal prepared in the fridge and it looked like he'd packed his lunch for the day. So I think it's not a hard and fast rule, but if anyone's not in the right state of mind and they're contemplating suicide, that the furthest thing probably from their mind would be preparing a meal mm. that they're going to actually take to work. If you're going to go and take your life, you're not going to leave your bike in the lane around the corner from your house, you know? make the sandwiches for work. Like, it just, none of it made any, any sense, you know? How they tried to determine the last day that he was seen. He had taken out three videos from the local rental and returned one of three. Because he'd, he'd obviously watched that one, he'd another two to watch. So, like, there was nothing to indicate that, that you know, there was any depression or self-harm involved in it, you know? That day, Jared also went to his letting agent, paid his rent and headed off on his bike. From the beginning of the investigation, the New South Wales Police took the approach that until they knew otherwise, they would treat the case as a potential homicide. When we approach a matter of that nature, it's always prudent to treat it as a murder investigation because then if we find something subsequent down the track, and say, for instance, where they were able to locate his body 
you know, a couple of months down the track, if we didn't treat it like a murder in the first instance, then we would have missed a lot of that evidence and the possible thing that could have led to the arrest of the person that's, that's done it. Because Gerard's disappearance wasn't discovered for almost two months, detectives Tony Hughes and Dave Byrne had very little to go on. It's difficult when you haven't got a scene, you haven't got a body, and we didn't even know whether that bike was tied to that location. There was no indication of any type of weapon. The investigation was void of any type of physical or scientific evidence that we could utilise to attempt to paint a picture or work out what happened to him. There was just nothing. It was frustrating. When you have a a missing person, the first thing we do is check their history to see what sort of associates they keep with or if they've got a chequered past or whether if you look at their bank records, you look to see whether they've got gambling issues or you might look at their the company they keep or the background history. So what we're looking for is a line of inquiry that we can follow. We're just looking for some direction, somewhere to go. Banking records are always a critical thing because that determines the person's spending habit. Um, like we see where they frequent from the spending patterns from banking records. There was also a lot of locations that we visited as a result of him being an Irish national, pubs and the like, that we went to and put up pictures and canvassed on numerous occasions. Uh, we're trying to just get a sighting of him. No one remembered him being anywhere except the last time he paid his rent and returned a video. We had air searches undertaken of the terrain around Marrickville and parklands. We had divers scour the Cooks River and various lakes and ponds nearby in an attempt to find a body. At every turn was met with a negative result. Back in Dublin, the Mooney family were doing their best to stay in touch and figure out what they could do. I had been in constant contact with the police in Marrickville every night. But there's only so much the police can say to you, you know. I needed to be there. I just needed to go. We knew something was wrong, but, like, you just presume that that it's, it's something that can be fixed. You don't presume that something is not going to be resolved. I went out then on the 22nd of August. August 22nd, 1996, was almost 100 days after Gerard had gone missing. I remember thinking that, okay, he's in hospital somewhere, he's after having an accident, he's after coming off the bike, and if I go out, I'll find him. I remember my dad said to me, um, bring back his clothes. I I, I remember thinking to myself, "Why why would he say something like that, you know? But my dad just said to me, bring back a suit and bring back shoes. I went to Malaysian Airlines. I'm actually just looking at this. It's actually part of what's in the box here. This is just my boarding pass for Kuala Lumpur. Obviously on my, my way over there. I went over with the clear thought in my head that I was actually going to stay in his unit. And, you know, his friends would call around and I'd ask them where he was and I'd go to the local hospital and I'd find him there and he'd probably have to fall off the bike and or else... He had gone off on his travels and had fallen off his bike. He was in some hospital. I was convinced of that, you know, that, like, you know, a man who's six foot four, like, Jerry, just just didn't disappear off the face of the earth. How could they? I'd never been to Australia. Um, I had seen it in athletes and, you know, 
kangaroo. It's even on the citizenship documents, you know, the boomerangs. You know, I didn't know anybody apart from Jar who'd ever been in Australia. Um, I always thought it would be like London, that it'd be just home from home with the Irish. I didn't realise how vast it was. Very, very different to Ireland. Um, I didn't realise how many nationalities lived in the country. I didn't realise there was such an Asian influence in Australia. Um, that so many people didn't have English as a first language. I was very naive when I got there. I remember arriving in Sydney Airport and I was very tired. I didn't know where to go, so I thought the first thing I would do is just present myself at, at Marrickville Police Station, which is what I did. And they were so kind and so good to me. The police in Sydney were doing their best, but missing persons cases like this one need publicity by travelling all the way to Australia to search for her brother, Rita hoped to bring attention to the case. My first priority when I went there was to get as much publicity as I possibly could. That was beneficial because by having Rita there... Former detective Tony Hughes. And actually being an Irish person as well, with the Irish accent, and being the sister, it was more inviting for us to get responses from the public. Rita brought with her the the real-life emotional illustration to people of what this type of tragic circumstances results in for the family. That's former detective Dave Byrne again. It was all credit to Rita for approaching it like that and, and helping us, and we really appreciated that. I started ringing newspapers and I started ringing television, so I did television interviews and I did newspaper interviews. And in fairness, a lot of the, the newspaper outlets did pick it up. Gerard's case was featured on primetime television in Australia. Tonight we're appealing to anyone who might know what happened to Jerry Mooney. Ten years ago, Jerry's sense of fun and adventure led him from Ireland to Australia. He arrived in Sydney and the handsome young Irishman easily found work as a printer. Jerry did, however, maintain close contact with Ireland. My other brother was married on the 26th of July and it was highly unusual for Jerry not to make contact with the family. And when he didn't call home for more than two months, his older sister Rita reported him missing from the other side of the world. On that day, 36-year-old Jerry Mooney was classified as missing. Police then took to the streets for more clues in the mysterious disappearance of Jerry Mooney. We uh, attended approximately 36 hotels and clubs that are frequented by Irish people. That's Dave Byrne speaking on Australia's Most Wanted. Put up a number of posters, however no-one's come forward and said, I know Jerry Mooney. As well as attracting publicity to the case, the detectives also needed to look closely at Gerard's past and his relationships to see if they could provide any clues. He, he had a lot of friends up in Melbourne. A friend of his dad's owned a cycle shop up in Melbourne, so I think that might have been some of the attraction. He had a lot of like-minded friends up there. Um, he had a girlfriend when he was in Melbourne. I just thought it strange that if he was in a relationship for that length of time that he would just suddenly leave. But if, I think he was the one that wanted to leave, so that's what makes me think that, that he just wanted to move on, you know? And it was one way of leaving by going to, to Sydney. Gerard didn't have a wide circle of friends in Sydney because he'd only moved there about six months before going missing. So the police went to Melbourne to talk to his friends there. We spoke to a few people. We actually spoke to Des Flynn. I think he was probably 
from the inquiries that we found, he was probably the closest person to, to Jerry. He's, he's the one that um, would have known more about his life than most people that we spoke to. He was always described by every person that we came across as a very nice human being. There was nothing that we could identify in his lifestyle that we felt would have been a contributing factor to his demise. I stayed in Australia for 10 days. Everybody was very, very helpful. Um, the newspapers, the TVs, you know, the police especially were so good. The Irish community, they were really, really good. The, no information came forward about, about, you know, what he actually did with his life there. The people he worked with presumed he'd gone back to Melbourne when he didn't turn up to work one day. They knew that he'd, he'd come from Melbourne and they presumed that maybe he'd gone back. Like, everybody was very kind, but like, there, there was nothing anybody could do. I remember uh, I was taken out on a police boat into Sydney Harbour. Looking back on it now, I'm sure the purpose of it was to show me how vast and how, how you know, the country is huge. It is absolutely huge. If he'd gone into the harbour for any reason or been put in, like, that was it. When Rita Mooney went home to Ireland in 1996, the investigation in Australia carried on. Every avenue, every lead had to be explored. From, from our inquiries, there, there was an individual identified in the Philippines that um, he apparently had a relationship with. Although it seems to have been a casual relationship, Jared had stayed in touch with this woman he had met in Manila and her number appeared on his phone records. Dave and I uh, generated a number of inquiries and we actually uh, forwarded that information through Interpol over to the police over in the Philippines to ask the questions and then, depending on the responses back from those questions, we were trying to determine the nature of the relationship, whether it was just something casual. Like all their other leads, this one came to nothing. There was no connection to Jared's disappearance. I don't know what to say about so much about the Philippines insofar as that he had lived in Melbourne prior to moving to Sydney, which was only six months before he actually went missing. And, and up to that time, he'd had a girlfriend for two years. He'd actually moved apartment. He'd found a new job. You know, he'd, he'd done a long cycle and plus he'd come home to, to bury his mother. So I, I don't know when he would have had time to nurture this relationship in the Philippines. It, it just seems to be very casual. You know, I always felt that with Jura going missing that I was intruding in his private life, a life that I had no right to be in. It's very difficult from that point of view because when somebody goes missing, you know, every aspect of their life is opened up. I just have this feeling that whatever happened to Jura would have happened near her home. The police in Marrickville were coming to the same conclusion as Rita. We were starting to to come to the conclusion that something tragic had happened to him via some type of foul play. Was there a possibility that Jared had been the victim of a robbery that turned violent while cycling through the back lanes? Or had he intervened in some dispute and been attacked? Both of these outcomes could have been possible in Marrickville in the 1990s. All around that area in the in the late 80s and early 90s, I would suggest that there was probably more uh, propensity for violence. It was a bit of a, a rough area. There was some characters there that 
would have had a propensity to violence if something did occur. There's probably a lot more street crime and street-level drug crime in those days than there is now. And some of Gerard's gear was missing. The missing items that um, have never been located were his backpack and the contents of it. it. That lends itself to indicate that something's happened to him outside of the house. Even his, his bike shoes weren't located. The, the missing items being his watch that he purchased through the duty-free, but none of that was ever recovered. At the time, Marrickville was a very diverse neighbourhood. I remember going with the police in Marrickville and we were going to the local church because we were, I, I was hopeful that I could get the local priest to kind of announce it at Mass. And an example of how different it was to Ireland, they said Mass in 12 different languages. 12 languages. And most of these people were first-generation immigrants, so they didn't have English as their first language. So even if something was going on, it probably just went completely over their head. But the investigators were happy they had done everything they could at the time. There's a large Vietnamese demographic to, to the Marrickville area. Traditionally, the Vietnamese people would be concerned about authority coming to them. The usual response is, I didn't see any, didn't hear any, or whatever. We had a liaison officer, so he was actually a Vietnamese, English-speaking person. So if there was anything, people would have been forthcoming towards him. And in addition to the Vietnamese community around Marrickville, there was, it's always been a very strong Greek population. And we had a number of Greek-speaking officers. So when we did canvases of Marrickville Road and the surrounds, everyone who may have seen something or heard something had the opportunity to relay that to us. For whatever reason, nobody from the local area around Marrickville came forward in 1996. The way that we always investigate matters is to help people. We want to get a result, of course we do, at law, um, but we want to help people who are suffering. Um, and in a homicide or a missing person, it's always the family. After meeting Rita and knowing how close the Mooney family is, we were really wanting to try and get an answer for Rita. So, yeah, it was frustrating and disappointing, I suppose, to a degree. At this stage, I had come back from Australia and, you know, OK, we were still in contact with the police, but they had no news. We were in touch with the Department of Foreign Affairs. They had no news. You know, there, there was nothing for anybody to go on. Eventually, the decision had to be made, like, you know, do we pull back from this? And I think it's a decision every family has to make when somebody goes missing. Where do you draw a line? In an effort to draw that line and help move on, in 1999, three years after he went missing, an inquest was held. This was to declare that Gerard was in all likelihood deceased and, if possible, to establish a cause of death. So if you make an application to the coroner's court, the coroner will give a verdict, whether it's misadventure or foul play or whatever, and the police have to give all the evidence that they, that they have searched everywhere. And because Australia is federal, it meant they would have searched everywhere in Australia. And that's what we were looking for. Dave and I met with the coroner and discussed our findings. And at that particular stage, we both experienced enough to know exactly where the, the investigation was heading. And we both were of the firm belief that 
Jared had been killed in some way, shape or form. In New South Wales, that's an issue for the coroner. The actual inquest was the, the line in the sand where he was to make a determination. I'm just looking at it here. Um, I formally find that Jared Anthony Mooney died on or about May 1996, but as to the place, manner and cause of death, the evidence adduced does not enable me to say. In the years that followed the inquest, the investigation stayed open. It's not a full stop in the investigation process because it's an open finding from the coroner. Indeed, if some sort of information or a person came forward, they could reopen that inquest and hear that additional evidence. Rita and her family never forgot about Gerard. It's now almost 27 years since Gerard Mooney disappeared. In Rita's case, almost half a lifetime living without her brother and not knowing what happened to him. Because Gerard's been missing so long now at this stage that, that as time goes on, you feel you've less and less hope of getting any information. Rita and her family never forgot about Gerard, but there was little they could do. That was until 2019. I was lucky enough to talk to Carmel Griffin. My name is Detective Sergeant Carmel Griffin. I'm attached to the Missing Persons Unit, which is part of the Garda Protective Services Bureau. She invited me to go to Missing Persons Day. The Missing Persons Day is an event organised by the Department of Justice. It's an annual event and it usually it takes place on the first Wednesday in December. It brings together all of the families of missing people in Ireland. It's a very important day to recognise the families of, and friends of missing persons um, and it's one day where they can get together help and support each other but feel recognised that their loved one hasn't returned to them yet. It means a huge lot to people because like me, 27 years on, it gives some hope and it also gives um, an idea of what is currently possible to progress these cases. Even though I, I connected in Ireland with um, the Irish Missing Persons Unit, they were happy to take my DNA and, and generate a profile and send it to Australia. Our own DNA database was set up in November 2015 and this database contains DNA profiles from unidentified human remains, missing persons and relatives of missing persons. In the case of, of Rita and her, her brother, obviously the, the investigative avenue there is the obtaining of a DNA sample to generate a DNA profile. I did obtain a DNA sample from Rita, who is the biological sister of Jared. Giving a DNA sample is a very simple process. It takes very uh, little time. It's not very invasive. It's uh, simply a foam lollipop on the inside of your cheek. It obtains cheek cells. It's submitted to Forensic Science Ireland and the physical sample is then uh, generated into a DNA profile. In this particular case for Gerard, uh, once the DNA profile was successfully generated, we requested then that the profile itself be sent through Interpol to Australia uh, for comparison against their databases. If they found something, OK, I was, I was prepared to deal with it. Um, I suppose you had thoughts in your head, do I have to go to Australia? What do I do? Do I make arrangements? You know, all of those thoughts, of course, go through your head. But, but I didn't have any huge expectation one way or the other. I was just very grateful that it was taken and that my DNA is there. And it didn't take long before the results came back. 
the news was that, that, that there wasn't a match. Now, I don't know how I feel about that. DNA is, is absolutely very important, but it's not useful, unfortunately, unless there's a comparative sample to, to compare it to. It, it just feels that, that you are actually progressing. You, you are still being active in, in, in trying to find him. It, you know, it mightn't be this year, but it could be next year, you know. Whereas previous to that, any unidentified bodies that you heard of that were found, you were, you'd be wondering, well, is that him or, you know, could it be him? Like, you had no way of knowing. From now on, each new discovery of unidentified human remains in Australia will be checked against Rita's DNA. It's pivotal to the investigation uh, because there might be very little other information about the remains located other than the DNA that is able to be uh, extracted. Well, I have the hope now that if his body was ever found that I would be matched to him, whereas previously there was no way I could ever be connected with anything that was found in Australia. And that is hope, you know, like you would get an answer. So, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe my children's lifetime. It just means if anything ever, ever comes forward, he will be matched to it. I don't think unless you've, you've gone through it yourself that you can truly understand what the families and indeed friends of, of missing persons go through. At this stage, there is agreement about Gerard Mooney's disappearance between former detectives Tony Hughes and Dave Byrne in Australia and Gerard's sister Rita in Ireland. I personally think one of two things happened. He could have been hit by a car. He was he was very much a gentleman, so if somebody was in trouble, he would have intervened. Maybe he just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He would have been very much the gentleman if there was any kind of, you know, injustice going on in front of him. He would have intervened. He wouldn't have walked away, you know. So did he come across a situation that he intervened in that he shouldn't have? In my mind, it was probably one of those scenarios, you know. I think we both landed in the place that we don't really know how it happened, but we do think it wasn't planned. We do think it was opportunistic. It could have been robbery. It could have been an accident and someone's panicked and then disposed of a body. Along with the prospect of a DNA match, the other hope they have is that back in 1996, on that rainy day in Marrickville, Someone saw something and told someone else. There's an old saying, loose lips sink ships. So I think the only way that we would ever solve this is that someone comes forward uh, who's been told something by the person who, who actually may have killed Jared. Rita Mooney also believes enough time has passed that someone with information about her missing brother might be ready to come forward. The hope now would be that maybe the children of these people um, might have heard a story. Maybe their parents in their own language had spoken to them. So maybe they could come forward now and, and, you know, any information they had, you know, if they could give that now. But maybe people saw something and just couldn't communicate it at the time, you know, if, if you know, English wasn't their first language. The, the passage of time since Jerry went missing to now... If there was a perpetrator out there, the person that's committed the offence, th- those years have all gone past and they're coming closer to their end. And it may be the case that they're, they're suffering some sort of guilt and they're, 
and they may want to come forward. Nearly 27 years after her brother went missing, Rita is still waiting and hoping. That's how it is when someone disappears out of your life. To be left behind is to be left always wondering and waiting. Wherever in the world you're listening to this podcast, if you know anything about Gerard Mooney, or indeed any other missing person, please tell someone in authority. The smallest of details could have the biggest of impacts on someone's life. But even still, we keep in contact with the Unsolved Homicide Squad and whenever there's a skeletal remains found, we'll reach out and just see, you know, in the hope that it might be Jared and that we can get closure for the family. And it's admirable for Rita to still hold hope for finding some sort of answer for, on behalf of her family and herself, and I think that's a testament to the to the love she's got for Jerry. Here's some photograph of Jared. He took these himself in Australia. And that's a photograph there of Jared standing beside his bike. He cycled across Australia as far as Alice Springs on his own in six weeks. He's got panniers on the, on, on the back of his bike carrying his provisions... He's got his sunglasses. It actually looks as if he's standing on sand, but it's not. It's actually a salt lake. And I remember that because he wrote to us about it and told us about it. We all would like the answers, but anything at this stage would be very much appreciated. <laughs>